0: The sermon today is a continuation of our messages on the book of Revelation. We've been studying the book of Revelation, so if you'd like to just very briefly turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 as we very briefly give an overview of what we've studied so far and leading up to our study of Revelation 14, the second angel's message. But very briefly, the book of Revelation opens with these words, the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. Revelation doesn't necessarily reveal scary things or symbols or beasts or plagues. It reveals Jesus Christ, and it goes on to say, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent it and signified it by his angels to his servant John. So John receives this message which is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it contains things which will shortly take place. So thus He's talking about things that are going to take place in the future. Thus, Revelation is a book of prophecy that reveals Jesus Christ. As the early chapters go on, we see in the groups of sevens, whether it's the symbolic seven churches, the symbolic seven seals, with the symbolic seven trumpets, all of them give a history of the church from the time of John when he was writing all the way to the time of Jesus' return some 2,000 years later. And I personally praise the Lord that we are living towards this end of the spectrum instead of that end of the spectrum. I believe Jesus' coming is soon and very soon as we see prophecy unfold and we see uh, fulfillments all around us. And we find ourselves now at the time near Jesus' coming, and the second half of the book of Revelation focuses on those end-time events. In Revelation chapter 11, we saw... a a difficult time for God's people for 1,260 years. In Revelation chapter 12, we saw a difficult time for God's people for 1,260 years. In Revelation chapter 13, we saw a difficult time for God's people for 1,260 years. Yet, all of those times the church was faithful, but they were told to just hang on or be patient or endure. But in Revelation chapter 14, God's messengers If you want to say strike back, Revelation chapter 14 opens with a view of this hundred and forty four thousand again, symbolic, language, having harps in their hands and they sing a song before the throne and they follow the lamb wherever they go. And it says in verse five, and in their mouth was found what? No deceit. So if you don't have deceit in your mouth, what do you have in your mouth? Truth, right? These people are speaking the truth of God, representing the character of God against the backdrop of all the darkness that Satan has tried to foist upon the earth. Okay? And out of their mouths comes these, what we know collectively as the three angels' messages. God's last warning to a world that's soon to be uh, confronted with the coming of Jesus, these three angels' message. Last Sabbath, we looked at the first angels' message, and we'll review it briefly now. Verse 6 reads... Then I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And as we saw in Revelation 13 and the rest of Revelation 14, there are eight different calls to worship. Seven of them are calls to worship the counterfeit Christ, but there's one call to true worship that God and his people will be giving to this earth at that time. And as they give that message, they also proclaim that the hour of his judgment not will come or might come, but it has come. Thus we understand that the messages of the three angels, and particularly that first one as it began, are to be given at a particular time in earth's history. After that 1,260 years of persecution that we've studied previously ended in 1798 and during the time of the judgment that began in heaven in 1844. These messages that we're reading are particularly pertinent to the Christians living in the world today, to the, to the messengers that God has on earth at this time in which we're living. And today we're going to study the second message found in verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is what? Fallen is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The burden of our message today is to understand this second phase of the three angels' messages, this Babylon is fallen message, and its application in our lives today. But before we do any study of God's word, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that sabbath provides for physical rest and for spiritual fellowship and now lord as we as a people come to your word we ask that the same spirit who inspired its writings will now write it upon our hearts and minds help us not only to understand it and receive it but lord help us to be your messengers in these closing hours of earth history for we pray it in jesus name amen As we look at verse 8 of Revelation 14, an entire sermon from one verse, is it possible? Yes, indeed. (laughs) In fact, I think there's several verses, several good sermons right here in this verse, but you notice that the language that's used in Revelation 14, in fact, oftentimes in the book of Revelation, is symbolic. And it's not just symbolic in numbers and in colors, but it also alludes to Old Testament things. You've seen reference to Sodom and Gomorrah and to Jezebel and to things that... It doesn't explain the whole story. It expects you to already know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah or Jezebel, or in this instance, the city of Babylon. Okay? So if you didn't know what Babylon was and you just came to Revelation 14 and verse 8, you could just start shooting from the hip. I think that's Babylon. I think that's Babylon. But the Bible is its own interpreter, and we should understand that the Bible already addresses who and what Babylon is. So let's take a look, and today we're going to study what is this Old Testament reference that's being employed here in Revelation 14, 8. What is the history of Babylon? To understand that, we need to go to the other end of the Bible. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 basically is the story of Noah and his family stepping off the ark at the end of the flood, okay? Okay. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 that lead up to chapter 9 tell the story of the great flood that God sent on the earth. And the reason that God sent this flood on the earth is because of the wickedness of the earth at that time. In fact, at the beginning of the flood story in Genesis chapter 6, just a few verses before, it explains... Verse 5, and chapter 6, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So he said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made him. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And as chapter 6, 7, and 8 continues, it tells that story of the flood, And when it's all over, we go to Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his family step off of the boat into a completely unpopulated, uh, reformed and refashioned world. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. By the way, already in Genesis 9, they're borrowing language from earlier in the Old Testament. Be fruitful and multiply. Where does that remind you of? creation right adam and eve basically he's starting the world all over again be fruitful and multiply and what were they supposed to do fill the earth they didn't say stay in one place and build a great city it said spread out over the earth and fill it up fill the earth this was the covenant given him if you skip down by the way to verse 8 then god spoke to noah and to his sons notice it's always noah and his sons it's interesting saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth that is with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So you get the picture that Noah and his sons and the wives that go with them, this family of God, step out to repopulate the earth that God has destroyed because of earth's wickedness, man's wickedness, right? But he makes a covenant with them. He gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. But don't worry, I will never flood the earth again as we have with water before, okay? Now, go down to verse 18. Now, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Okay, seems clear enough. But already it starts to tell this story, and you think, oh good, all the wickedness has been destroyed. Everything is good now, and we're going to start off fresh. Well, we start off fresh, but automatically, right at the very beginning of this new history, we see the creeping in of rebellion once again. Look at the story as it unfolds in verse 20. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, the Bible doesn't give us too many details of that particular incident, but apparently it was quite immoral what Ham did. His father awakes to see this. In fact, go to verse 24. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. That is the descendants, the offspring of Ham. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So you basically have Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But already in that first generation of new repopulation of the planet Earth, we find the rebellion that had marked the world before the flood coming in again through the lineage of Ham, through Ham and his descendants. Basically, all the way, by the way, Japheth, the Bible says his tents would dwell with Shem, they would become one large family, and then there would be Ham and his descendants. So you start to see two seeds, two lines, come out of the flood, just as there were two lines, Cain and Seth coming out of the creation story, if you recall that. So now it has happened again, and then it outlines all of these descendants in chapters 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. By the way, you might be thinking, why are we talking about Noah and the flood? If we're trying to talk about the book of Revelation. Well, this is the beginnings of Babylon, okay? We're getting there. Now, verses 2 through six, uh, two through 5 outline the sons of Japheth, and, of course, they would be absorbed into the sons of Seth, uh, Shem. I'm sorry. But look at verse 6 now. The sons of Ham, and, of course, Ham was the rebellious one, the naughty one, right, were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And then skip down to verse 8. Cush... Who was, of course, the son of Ham, who was the son of Noah, Cush begot Nimrod. And he began, to, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So apparently, Nimrod was a very influential, very powerful individual, was well known, a mighty man. But what does he do with that might? Verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And he had some other nations, other other cities that he began as well, but apparently Babel was the beginning of his city. And then in chapter 11, it tells us the story of Babel. Now watch this, chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Does that make sense, by the way, that the world would have one language and one speech? Yeah. There was one family that started it all. There's no diversification. Yeah, there's just one family, one speech, one language. Verse 2. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and there they dwelt. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar, And they said, come let us build ourselves, and we typically think build ourselves a tower, right? Because we're already, oh, I know this story, it's the Tower of Babel. But what was their primary purpose? It was not just to build a tower. The tower was one function of it, right? They said, come let us build ourselves a what? A city with a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a couple things contrary to the command of God in here. First of all, God had said, multiply and fill the earth, and they say, let's build a great city right here so we don't have to be scattered across the face of the earth. We're going to congregate here and be one mass of humanity instead of spreading across the whole earth. Also, they make this great tower, which happens to be waterproof, by the way, All the way up, the goal is to make it as high as the heavens, you know, to protect themselves against this flood that God had said wouldn't happen. He said, don't worry, you can go fill the whole earth. I'm not going to send a flood again. Go scatter, be my representatives, establish the new kingdom again. And they say, actually, instead of what God has said, let's congregate together, build ourselves a great city, make a name for ourselves and have a great tower that everyone will know who we are and we can protect ourselves from God. We will defy the God of heaven. He can send whatever flood we want and we're going to take care of ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, I know that if I were the Lord, I wouldn't have stopped with the, let's come down and investigate. I would just start executing judgment. But you'll notice that every time God executes judgment, he always investigates the facts of the matter first. Before there is an execution of ju- divine judgment, there is always a divine investigation to ascertain the truth and to make sure everyone understands why this judgment is coming. Okay? This is a fascinating thing. It's a template that we're going to see in the book of Revelation. But we're building on it. Okay, And the Lord said in verse 6, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do? Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. And I love verse 7, the little linguistic irony. Come, let us go down. Remember, they said, come, let us make this thing. God says, okay, come, let us go down. And there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, So notice, his will will be done. And they ceased building the city. So Babel was this original city. It was supposed to be this megalopolis, this massive core of humanity with this tower that reaches to the heaven. And Nimrod was the leader, and it was the... And God said, oh, look what they're doing now. Basically, he saw, I believe, in the people after the flood, the same spirit that had been in the people before the flood. He says, we need to do that. We need to scatter them abroad. So he confuses their language. And it says here, verse 9, therefore its name is called Babel or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And you would assume that, oh, I guess that was the end of the story. They tried to make this great city and with this great tower, but God stopped the building of the tower, the building of the city ceased, and that was the end of it. But what we see later in the Old Testament is a revived city of Babel, or Babylon. Go to the book of Daniel. Though it's much later in, its his, in the Old Testament history, it's the same, by the way, it's the same geographic location, but it's the same spirit behind the first city of Babel, Babel as it is in the renewed city of Babylon. For instance, Daniel chapter 4 Here, instead of Nimrod, we have Nebuchadnezzar as the main leader, and he was a very, very proud man. The Lord had worked with him and and had tried to uh, change his heart, but he kept going back to this pride, and finally a a vision was given to him that if he did not change his ways, he was going to have a serious uh, discipline process from the Lord. But we go to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 28. where apparently all the things that had been prophesied about him came to pass. And it says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling, for my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? So he's looking around this revived Babylon city, and he looks around and he says, Is this not This great city of Babylon that I have built for my honor and glory. There's a spirit of Babylon that manifested itself in these kings. In fact, there was also a central figure like the tower previously in this Babylon. Just go back one chapter. Daniel chapter 3. The same Nebuchadnezzar, very much like the predecessor Babylon... Is a great city with a great thing centered to it. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. By the way, as we go through these Old Testament references, you'll notice language that is borrowed from those passages that's inserted in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation puts all of these Babylon references together in a cumulative pile and where we're headed today at the end of the sermon, but For now, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So you see that there's a central leader, Nebuchadnezzar, the face of the organization, if you will, just like Nimrod before. Now there's a great city of Babylon, and there's this central object of honor and reverence and worship. In fact, he literally calls in all the representatives of all the nations, tribes and tongues and people, this is a worldwide empire, and he calls all the representatives together to that dedication ceremony of this image to King Nebuchadnezzar basically makes everyone, or should I say almost everyone, bow down and worship. Of course, there were the three Hebrew worthies who refused to bow down and worship, and they stood for the right, though the heavens fall. Now, what's fascinating about this Babylon is it was stopped just like the earlier version of Babylon. Go down to uh, Daniel chapter 5. By the way, Daniel chapter 4 is written just to show what God can do with stubborn, hard-hearted people. (laughs) He'll work with them and push them and prod them and whack them upside the head with a two-by-four if he needs to, but he wants to give them every opportunity to repent. And I believe with all of my heart that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar once again in the resurrection of the faithful instead of the resurrection of the wicked. But Daniel chapter 5, a new king is on the throne of Babylon, and notice what the scripture reads there in chapter 5 and verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Notice that wine is always involved here, and there's this great city, and all the different things that Revelation is mentioning, we're unpacking here in Old Testament history. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine... Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the treasure house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Notice that there's Babylon as a city with the king leading out, having people drink wine, during this fornicating feast. Okay. All the elements of Dan, uh, Revelation 14, verse 8, are here in history. But it says in verse 5, In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw part of the hand that wrote. And I'm guessing that's the moment that the party changed. Right? I don't know how drunk you'd have to be, but to not notice the big hand writing on the plaster of the wall. Notice, in fact, verse 6, Then the king's countenance, what? Changed. Yes, things got real, right? And his thoughts troubled him, I bet, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. And as his fathers had done before, notice what happens in verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Which, by the way, in the book of Daniel, these people who apparently, these diviners, these uh, uh, false prophets, are on the Babylonian payroll, and never one time have they ever gotten anything right. But people keep going back to them, hoping they're going to say something right this time, right? But of course, they fail him, and Someone mentions, you know, there was a guy who used to be around here. In fact, I think he's around here still somewhere. He used to be a counselor to King Nebuchadnezzar, but I think you've sent him back to somewhere else, right? Of course, verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? It's not a really, it's kind of a, Not a nice way to address who's now the second highest in the kingdom, basically. Hey, aren't you one of those captives that my father Nebuchadnezzar brought in a long time ago? Hmm. And he tells, I have heard of you, that there's a spirit of God and understanding in you, and now I have this mystery. And notice what verse 17 says. I love Daniel so much. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't want your money. I don't want your gifts. I'm doing just fine. I've been here a long time, and trust me, I'm going to be here after you two. But he goes on. Yet I will, make, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then he gives a little story, and notice the story. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished he executed, whomever he wished he kept alive, whomever he wished he set up, and whomever he wished he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his Dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven Till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. So he basically, in a few verses there, recaps the story of Nebuchadnezzar and says, you know what happened. In fact, he specifically says in verse 22, but you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. He's like, you should have learned his lesson but you knew all of this, and you have decided to defy the God who's already demonstrated His self as worthy of worship. And you've decided to defy Him publicly, to drink all this wine, to bring in the vessels that are dedicated to Him, and to have this fornicating feast. And Verse 23, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of His house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you appraise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God, and I love how he addresses him, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And this is a stern rebuke. He's like, you're standing before God who holds your breath in his hand. The only reason you have another breath, another heartbeat, another blink or twitch is because God doesn't go... (laughs) And that God you've decided to publicly defy. Then the fingers of the hand. It almost gives the impression that the fingers of the hand that's holding your breath those are the fingers that have now announced to you this judgment then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written and this is the inscription that was written mene mene tekel upharsin this is the interpretation of each word mene god has numbered your kingdom and finished it time is up Heres, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. I'm sorry, Tekel. Verse 27, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Notice again that this, what's going to happen this night with the kingdom being taken away is simply the manifestation or the executing of a judgment that had happened previous. You have been weighed and found wanting. There has already been an investigation, and you, my friend, your time is up. Because it says there in verse 28, Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And once again, you have God putting an end to Babylon and its king. So let's think about this a little bit. In both instances, in the original uh, Tower of Babel incident and now in the kingdom of Babylon, if you want to say version 1 and version 2.0, a type of monument is established to man's glory instead of God's to be honored by all the people. Okay? Some central thing is set up to be honored and revered and worshipped in the place of God. Also, in both instances, God reviews the evidence against Babylon. I'm going to come down and I'm going to see for myself. I'm going to weigh it in the balances. I'm going to think it through. I'm going to evaluate before I execute judgment. There's an investigative phase of judgment before the executive phase of judgment. Is that clear? Then God executes justice according to the findings of the investigation. What he finds out, he verifies and then executes because of. Now fascinating, all of this Old Testament history of Babylon The New Testament writers, as God gives them inspiration through his Holy Spirit, and they look to the coming of Jesus, apparently they see in God's people again a third incarnation, if you will, of Babylon. They see Babylon coming again. And notice again in the Old Testament, Babylon started, its very nexus was way back in the time of Noah. And from that point on, it it wasn't full-blown, it wasn't immediate... But that spirit of Babylon grew and grew and grew and it manifested itself and it built a city and it built an image and it made everyone worship and God had to do an investigation and execute judgment. That whole process started in the time of Noah. And you see the same thing prophesied to happen after the time of Jesus with the early Christian church. Go to 2 Thessalonians if you would, please. 2 Thessalonians, as the writers of prophecy look forward to To the coming of Jesus, notice that there's a warning about this Babylon or an Antichrist power that would be coming up in the world. And notice how it would come up, from where it would come up. Notice all the parallels that we're going to see. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, not to be flippant, but 2 Thessalonians is obviously not his first address to the Thessalonian people, yes? He had 1 Thessalonians. And if you recall, if you've ever been to a funeral in the Seventh-day Adventist church, you're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he says, Brother, and I do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, right? And he starts describing the coming of Jesus. For the Jesus will come, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And you know those passages very well. That was in 1 Thessalonians. So Paul has already told them about the coming of the Lord. But now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 1, notice what he writes. He said, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, again, clearly this reference to the second coming, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, he believes that Jesus is coming, does he not? Of course. But he's like, it's not now. Don't, don't even, if someone says, by the way, I got this from Paul. No, you didn't. And if I ever say it to you, I'm out of my mind, disregard me. Right? Even if an angel comes from heaven, you cannot change this prophetic history that God has said is going to come. So he says here, Let no one deceive you. Now notice carefully verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. Praise the Lord, there's no period there. <laughs> there is a day coming, amen? Yes. But something has to happen first, right? For the day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, a little added information here. Son of perdition is only used twice in the Scriptures. Once here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the other time by Jesus himself in John chapter 17. When he's praying to his father, he says, at the close of his ministry, Father, I've kept all those you have given me except for one, that son of perdition. And he was talking about his disciples, right? And he wasn't talking about Peter, even though he had a loud mouth. And he wasn't talking about Thomas, even though he was doubting. Who is he talking about as the son of perdition? Judas Iscariot, right? And Jesus said, this is who the son of perdition is. One of my inner circle, one of my closest compatriots here, one of the 12 has fallen away and betrayed me. And here, the Apostle Paul picks up on that language and says, out of the church of Christ will come the enemy of Christ. A falling away, the man of sin, the son of perdition will be revealed. And notice what it says he will do in verse 4. And tell me if this doesn't sound like Babylonian language. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, that sounds like a horrible character. And he says the day of Christ, the coming of Christ, will not come unless this is revealed, unless this comes to fruition, unless this is seen. Now, notice what he says in verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Clearly, is this the first time he's gone over this material? No. No. And we have the evidence of that in 1 1 Thessalonians. He already told them about the coming of the Lord. But he said, apparently some of you have forgotten what I told you, right? So he's going over this again now in verse 6. And now you know what is restraining that he, that is this man of sin, son of perdition, may be revealed in his own what? Time. In his own time. Apparently, notice from Paul's perspective here, Jesus is coming. But something has to happen first. A falling away from the church, a, true, a, 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 a splitting off here, a man of sin, a son of perdition, a Judas Iscariot-type figure will arise from within the church at an appointed time. But he can't arise yet because, according to Paul, there's something restraining him, something holding him back. That's again in verse 6. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. And then notice this, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is what? Already at work. Now, it hasn't formalized into a system or a structure, and it hasn't built a great tower or an image for the world to bow down and worship, but it's already stirring. There's a spirit of antichrist, of lawlessness, that's already at work, Paul says. Paul says. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Apparently something was restraining, withholding this complete maturing of this. But it says in verse 8, And when the lawlessness will be revealed, and then the, lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the what? The brightness of his coming. So notice from Paul's perspective. Jesus is coming, but even already in the earliest stages of the Christian church, there's a spirit of lawlessness already at work. Something's restraining it, and I believe that's the imperial power of Rome. A pagan Rome is still in place at the time of the writing of Paul, but he says someday that's going to move. And it's giving opportunity for this Babylon to reestablish itself. And it won't be Nebuchadnezzar this time, and it won't be Nebuchadnezzar, but there will be a stern-faced king, as Daniel talks about, or a little horn with eyes and a mouth that speak pompous words against the Most High. will think to change the times and laws, and will persecute the people of God for a time, times, and half a time. Okay? Which, by the way, that time, times, and half a time, as we've mentioned before, is the most often mentioned time prophecy in all the Bible. Time, times, and half a time. It's known as time, times, and half a time. It's known as 42 months. It's known as 1,260 days. But the mathematics of them all add up to 1,260 years of this rule persecuting power over God's people. Fascinating. Fascinating. So what we see is a falling away among God's own people prophesied in the earliest days of the church, that falling away would begin in the early church, but it would grow after given an opportunity to mature and reach its height during the 1,260 years, which we've already covered, begins in 538 A.D. and ends in 1798 A.D. Though this Antichrist Babylon, or the papacy of the Roman church, would receive a deadly wound, it would revive even stronger than ever. By the way, are we living before or after 1798? After. If there's anyone (laughs) not sure about that, we are long past 1798. We're not in the time of the deadly wound. We're in the time when that wound is being healed. Getting stronger and stronger, this Antichrist power for the last final pushes of Earth's history. As we studied already in Revelation chapter 13, and if you missed those messages, they're available on CD or on the internet, go back and listen to them. At that time of this revived Babylon, it would use the strength of another nation, the United States of America, to establish a memorial to Babylon's greatness. This time not a tower, and this time not an image of gold, but this time an image to the beast. That everyone on earth would be required to honor upon pain of death. Fascinating. By the way, we see this again in Revelation We saw it in Revelation 13 already, we've studied that. If we skip ahead to Revelation chapter 17, you see mention of Babylon again. Chapter 17 and verse 1, again looking at end time events and the book of Revelation pools all of those Babylon references from the Old Testament and gives them an end time significance. Revelation 17 and verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls and came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Sounds exactly like Revelation 14, verse 8, the second angel's message, and it's using the same language from the fall of Babylon in Daniel chapter 6. I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 5. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And of course, in Bible prophecy, the woman always represents the church, right? The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots, by the way, apparently her offspring are no good either, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. He shows, he's shown prophetically this modern-day Babylon, this after-Christ Babylon, and he was astonished. Notice it was persecuting the saints of God, though it was doing it in the name of God, claiming to be God in the temple of God. But we go back to Revelation 14. And apparently, at the height of his power, when it's making all the world wander after the beast and worship the image of beast and receive the mark of the beast, at that time there's going to be this group of people who have the audacity to stand up and say with a loud voice, Babylon is what? Fallen. So by all appearances, it looks like everybody in the world is wandering after the beast and receiving the image of beast and going after the mark of the beast and blah, 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 blah. And the beast seems to be unstoppable. And yet there's this group of people who stand up and say, hey, that's a house of cards. It's all fallen. Fallen. It's fallen. Notice it said, the great city because she's made all the nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. He's like, she's made you get drunk and lose your mind, but I'm telling you, it's all fallen. There's no reason to go there anymore. By the way, go to Revelation chapter 18. It describes this process of calling out to Babylon. Why would there be a message about Babylon falling at this time in earth's history? It's because of this in verse, chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Apparently there's a darkness that Satan has tried to put over the entire planet, but there's going to be representatives of his light and his truth amidst that darkness, and they're going to shine that light bright in that time. And it says in verse 2, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Whoever says this at that time has some guts. Babylon is sitting here claiming to rule the world, and anyone who defies us will be marked, and we will, be, will not be marked, you know, and they will be put to death. And there's this group of people who said, by the way, it's all false. And they don't just timidly hold on to this truth and hope everything goes away in the quiet. They say with a loud voice, Babylon is fallen. Why are they so intent? Are they just wanting to call out names? No, they're not just trying to, we know the truth and that's crazy over there. No, 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 no. Why are they making this call so loud and so urgent? Goes on For all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her whom? My people. Friends, why do we cry out that Babylon has fallen? Is it because we, hey, we know who Babylon is and there it is. No. It's to call people out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. Unless you receive her plagues, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. She's been weighed in the balances and found wanting. But there's people in that structure, in that system, who don't know and are following along mindlessly in the dark, but they're supposed to be a people who are supposed to give them light. So, in this end time scenario, you see building here in the book of Revelation. It looks like Satan and his earthly confederacy are winning and advancing and taking over the whole world by storm, setting up an image that if anyone defies it, they will be killed. But at that time, A, people will rise up and speak contrary to what Satan has been promoting around, where his darkness they give light, with his error they give truth, with his drunkenness they give sobriety, and people go and wake up. It's a very technical theological term. <laughs> but that is the mission and mandate of the Seventh day Adventist Church to be the people of God who not only have a message, but share that message with those who are in darkness. This is why the Lord has raised up this people at this time. You notice how the, go back to Revelation chapter 14, notice the sequence of how it happens. The first angel's message is, is the eternal gospel in the context of the judgment beginning and that judgment happens in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and the and, and the believers start getting a picture ah Christ has not come to the earth but he's gone to his father in the heavenly sanctuary and there's the throne of God and there's the 10 commandment law of God and they start understanding well wait a minute if judgment happens after then It can't happen right when you die. And and the Lord starts putting together in their minds a system of truth and light that's counter to everything that Satan has been pushing for thousands of years. The truth of what happens when someone dies, there is a judgment to come, that Jesus is coming soon, that the seventh day is the Sabbath, that God does have a law, that God will have a people. And they start seeing what God is saying in His heavenly sanctuary and seeing the starker and ever more stark contrast between the truth of God and the falsehoods of Satan. And then God says, go tell them that Babylon has fallen. As we understand the sanctuary message and we understand the truth of this time in which we're living and the present truth that God has given to us, we are not supposed to be reservoirs, but rivers. We are not supposed to hoard it to ourselves, but to share it with others. The purpose of having a people is not just to have a people. The purpose of having a people is to use those people to go bring more people so that God's kingdom can be expanded. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't come and find no one ready, but he finds a group who are ready, regardless of what Satan has said, who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. I believe that the Lord has entrusted us with this end-time message and there's a danger in that, folks, I just want to tell you. As wonderful as it, it is to know the truth and to trust in Jesus, to by faith see him in the heavenly sanctuary, to know the prophecies, to understand the truth of, of death and life and resurrection and all these great marvelous things that we've been entrusted with, we have a proportional responsibility to share it with others what we know we're supposed to share. God never has the people just to tell secrets and they just take care of it and just hold it on to themselves. No, 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 no. I tell you this so you can share it to others. And friends, I'm telling you, Jesus is coming soon. And Babylon truly is fallen, and our job is to call them out. I hope the message has made sense. Has it been clear today? Now, I, by saying amen, you know you're signing up for war. <laughs> right yes i understand well good now you have a responsibility to do i would beseech you i would beg of you to start thinking of those people in your life who you know are still in babylon and there's no reason they need to be there anymore who you understand they don't understand and you have a message that would change their lives that would open their eyes that would let them breathe fresh air for the first time in their lives think about those people and don't just think about them in a, mm, look at there, there they go. Strategically think about them. Lord, how can I win them? How can we reach them? Put it down on a piece of paper. Think about your friends, your families, your neighbors. I'm guilty of it too. There are neighbors that should know what I know and they don't yet. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Lord, how can I, how can I get that flashlight of truth into the darkness of their hearts? How can I do it? But this is the message we've been given. This is the mission that we have. The Lord is going to pour out showers of blessings. I don't doubt it, but he wants to use us as those vehicles. So I would urge you, beseech of you, please think of those people. Think of how to reach them. Prayerfully ask the Lord how to do it. Attend the training. Any opportunity you have to learn how to better be a witness for Jesus, because I don't know about you, but I'm ready for Babylon to completely fall and Jesus to come. And this is our job. Let us be the showers of blessing this world is parched dry land needs to hear. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.